Welcome to Boiling Point. Plants are signaling and communicating with their environment in unique and remarkable ways. We just don't always know how to interpret their signals. But observing flowers and pollination is the easiest way to tap into their secret language. Join us as we learn to understand the language of flowers. Welcome back to Boiling Point, the weekly science show on Eastside 89.7 FM. On the show today, it's your hosts, me, Ina, and Hannah. Hello. Today we are chatting to Ruby E. Stevens. Ruby is a PhD candidate in Macquarie University in Sydney, who studies flowers, pollination, and everything in between. Welcome to the show, Ruby. Thanks. Um, so maybe you can start by telling a little bit about your journey and how you became a pollination biologist. I mean, I started... In science, doing research, I got really interested in bees and did a lot of, um, I did my honours research on bees and particularly native bees in Australia. I learned just how many species of native bees there are. You know, when you think of bees, often you just think of honeybees because they're the ones people mostly see around. But we have over 2,000 species of native oh, bees in Australia. so many. Yeah. And a lot of them haven't actually been described yet because we have for those more than 2,000 species, about five bee taxonomists who can describe new species and work out what they actually all are. Wow. How do you decide like what a new species is or how do you identify a new species? It's hard. I'm more familiar with it in the plant world, but it sort of, it involves working out the evolutionary relationships a bit, right? And like, you sort of have to look both at the morphological things, so like what you can see about the species, like if it's a bee, maybe the patterns of veins on its wings, but you also want to look at the genetics because that can tell you a lot about, you know, sometimes things can look very similar because they've evolved to look very similar, but actually they've come from very different and unrelated lineages. So you're basically telling me that if sometimes in the news you have like a new bee discovered, like somebody just looked at the veins of a bee and was like, oh, that doesn't look like something I know and a new species is created. Yeah, absolutely. They love whenever that someone describes a new species saying, we've discovered it. Usually it's been discovered from the insect collections because there are thousands and thousands of undescribed insect species in insect collections already but we just don't have enough taxonomists to work through those insect collections and work out, oh, wait, hang on, this one is actually very different from everything we've seen before. Mm. So from bees, how did you find flowers interesting? So from bees, I kind of was already interested in pollination um, since I first heard about it in my undergrad. And that's why I went to bees first and looked at things from the bee side of things. But then when I finished my honours, wrote a thesis, and I went out into the world and was like, oh, I want to work as a biologist. And there was a lot of work with plants and not so much work with bees. So I ended up working as a plant ecologist and I did a lot of field work working with plants. I did field work in Kosciuszko National Park, like the high alpine area of Australia, looking for weed species that are flourishing there, unfortunately. And then I came down and did work right across New South Wales, learning how to tell the difference between different plants and identify them and also identify plant communities. So plants that often grow together in a community together. And how did you decide to do your PhD and why on pollination and flowers? I took 
many years thinking, oh, I'm, you know, I'm out doing work, but I want to go back into research and thinking about like, okay, but if I'm doing research, I want to do something that I'm really, really interested in and really passionate about. And I want to be sure that I'm really interested in that thing. And so I looked at lots of different projects that people advertised and I'd sort of talk to different supervisors and think about it a lot. But kind of the only thing that I ever felt super excited about or I'd be talking to someone about their project and I'd end up working around to, but oh, but how does pollination work in that system? Or <laughs> how can we make that question about pollination somehow? <laughs> so I found a supervisor who was able to work with me and from like that interest in pollination come up with a PhD topic that... So, okay, now what is pollination and why is it so interesting to you? What is pollination? I'll start there. It's basically how plants have sex. Generally, you, you can talk about pollination not in every type of plant. You can talk about it in flowering plants, but also in seed plants, which are the plants that evolved before flowering plants. And so both of those types of plants have pollen, which is essentially kind of like plant sperm. It's like the male part mm -hmm. of the plant. And... They need to, because plants can't move, it's their big challenge, they need to be able to somehow get that pollen from the male part of the plant to a female part of the plant, the stigma, usually, in a flower, um, or the ovule as well, to make fertilise it and make a seed, basically. So pollination is kind of describes that whole process. Often plants use animals to transfer the pollen, So people mostly will think of insects. Mm -hmm. They can also use wind to p carry and pick up pollen and take it to a, another plant. Or really rarely they use water. How, how does the water work with pollination? It's really rare. It's only usually in like plants that grow underwater in ah. the first place. Wait, so plants that grow underwater can still be flowering plants and have pollen? Seagrasses are, are all flowering plants. Yeah. And, do they, and so they have pollen? They have pollen. Wow. But they have their pollen looks crazy different. Okay. When I think when you look at it under a microscope, it's often got like long sort of filaments on the end of it. Okay. To help propel it through the water. Right, and it basically just gets spread by the currents or. Yeah. Wow. Or sometimes it f floats to the surface and and gets moved along okay. the surface. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. So, um, seed plants came before flowering plants. Is that what you said earlier or something? Yes. Oh, wow. What's an example of like a. So the most common one nowadays would be a pine tree. Okay. And like pine cones, when ah, you think about it, yeah, that's, yeah. that's the reproductive part of a pine tree. It's not yeah. a flower, but it does have, they have ovules yeah. and there are often male pine cones that will release pollen. Okay. And they're usually pollinated by wind. Yeah. And are there many examples of those still today or is it mostly flowering? I think it's, the estimates are 90% of the world's plants today are flowering plants. Okay. Yeah. And does, does that imply that's a more successful way of like reproducing or it certainly is gets you a bit more diversity. Okay. Yeah. Which you know is how we end up with so many flowering plant species. Yeah. across the world. And why is it causing this diversity or or how is it promoting this diversity? So it's a tr slightly tricky thing to explain and I've tried explaining it before. Um And I've failed. <laughs> this will be the time. <laughs> I think one of the interesting things is in a seed plant, there's no cover, like often the ovule is kind of just sitting out in the open. And so there's no way when pollen lands on it, it fertilizes that ovule and it makes a seed and that's that. 
Whereas in flowering plants, the ovule is often covered. Mm -hmm. And so the pollen will land on a stigma and then the pollen has to grow down to reach that ovule. Okay. And so that sort of slight remove means that flowering plants can do a lot of selection. Really? So they can basically, if a pollen is lands on them and they don't like it, like they don't like the genetics because the t- genetics are too similar to their own or because yeah. they detect that it's completely the wrong species, they can often abort that the growth of the tube. Wow. I had no idea about that. What, what is like the most interesting thing to you about pollination? I think the fact that it's this process that connects like... You know, it connects all these different levels. Like it connects plants and, and insects and birds and bats. Mm-hmm. All these different things are kind of part of it. And it's happening all around us. And we don't, to- you know, you don't really generally stand there and, and see it happening. But plant sex is happening around you all the time, basically. And what are you studying in your research about pollination? So I, as an ecologist, really like... looking around me and trying to make sense of the patterns that you see. Like I go out in the bush and I'm sort of like, oh, why is this growing here and not over there? Um, and my PhD is trying to do that with flowers at a really big scale. So trying to look at, at really large scale patterns across the landscape. And also, and this is the slightly scary spot part for me because I can't look at it, also trying to look at pollination in deep time and how it's evolved. since the beginning of flowers. So do you think that the location that these plants are growing um, is like related to pollination in a way? Or did I just misinterpret that? Kind of. Like I think, I think it's kind of all connected basically. Okay. So we look at this field called functional ecology where you look at plant traits and you look at like the size of the seed or the size of the leaves. Yeah. And often those sort of traits are used to predict, oh, this sort of plant can grow in this type of... A climate or an environment mm-hmm. because it's got these sort of traits and flowers haven't often been considered in that and so there's an argument that like oh what's happening with the flowers we kind of don't look at them as much mm-hmm. so you think like some types of pollination are more successful in some like different environments definitely and that's I mean that's most clear with wind pollination mm-hmm. like wind pollination is much more successful towards the um, the poles basically and And in drier environments is that just because there's not as many insects around to, to do the pollination yeah absolutely and also because pollen doesn't really like getting wet that's why water pollination is really rare yeah it t- okay. took a lot of evolution to get there so being able to be dry and like airborne mm-hmm. wind pollination pollination is actually really successful in those environments because the pollen can travel a crazy long way yeah so far. Yeah, but in the tropics, like where there's this sort of dense overstory and mm-hmm. it's all very humid, it's much less successful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's much more useful to get an insect to do that. Yeah. And can you tell a bit more about like how pollination evolved? Like I would imagine that pollination is such, especially like animal pollination is such a intricate process. Like I would imagine it would be the last thing to evolve. Um, evolutionarily, like that's... The kind of assumption for a long time was that that like animal pollination is more complicated and and therefore probably the ancestor like at least the ancestral seed plants were probably wind pollinated but there's been a lot of evidence recently that that might not be the case because I think particularly a lot of the seed plants nowadays are wind pollinated a lot of them are conifers 
but there are heaps of seed plants that have gone extinct that mm. used to be around, possibly because all of the flowering plants outcompeted them. A bunch of those have sort of people have looked at fossils and been like, oh, you know, some of they have these things called pollen drops or pollination drops that is like nect- a nectar reward for an insect. Mm, so it's like a so, sugar cube for the bee or for the yeah. bat? Probably not for the bee. Bees uh, only evolved around 100 million years ago. So definitely after flowers evolved. Wow. Yeah. Bees are really specialized for visiting flowers. They've got like hairs all over their body to pick up pollen. And they've got these little pollen baskets on their legs, which they can kind of comb the pollen from their bodies and pack it into the basket so they can carry it home. So all of those sort of very specialized things, they, they really evolved with flowers there for them to visit. So you're saying that flower gave rise to bees, basically? I think that would be, yeah. I've heard bee people argue, oh, bees gave rise to all of the diversity of flowers. So, you know, it can be hard to, like, say which one gave rise to the other. So like a chicken or egg situation in a way? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. I'm fascinated by this. How do you go back in time and work out, like, the, you know, evolutionary history of these things? Like, how do you get information from back then to work out what what came first or what happened? Or So the the very best source of information is fossils. Okay. And I am not a fossil person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But I, I, you know, talk to fossil people and go, wow, that's really cool that you can look at that. And, and are these like plant fossils or fossils of insects and other things? That both. We, both. Okay. Yeah. So flower fossils are really quite rare. Yeah, I don't like, think I've heard of them before. Yeah, they do exist. And there are a couple of very good ones. Yeah. But they're very patchy. Like when you think about plants, like people have trouble identifying plants nowadays when you've got the plant in front of you Mm because there are so many plant species and so when you've got a plant fossil it's you know it's degraded it's crushed it has no color it can be very difficult to identify fossils confidently yeah but people do do it or try to do it people do do it they try to do it they have big arguments about whether it's been done properly or not um some of the best preserved things are preserved in amber Yeah. Kind of like in Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they can't get DNA out of it, I don't think. Um, maybe one day. Maybe one day. Hopefully More research. <laughs> but yeah, that preserves like the full 3D structure sometimes. And, okay. so, and there's been like insect fossils that have been preserved with pollen on them, like yeah. still stuck to them, or pollen in their guts as well. Okay. So... Yeah. That stuff is really cool. It's not what I do. Yeah, sure. <laughs> what, what I do is I take an evolutionary tree, which mm-hmm. has been made using the DNA of different species. Yeah. And then that evolutionary tree is, has been calibrated using fossils where we are really confident that we know what family that fossil belongs mm-hmm. to, to try and give an estimate of when everything has evolved and what, it, what their relationships are to each other. Yeah. Okay. So what was the first pollinator? Some sort of insect, <laughs> I would say. Mm. And, and so they were there before the flowers. Pollinator insects definitely evolved later. Like the early insects, I think they just crawled. They couldn't fly. Mm. So they wouldn't have been very effective pollinators. Um, yeah, ones that could fly and move to different plants and transfer pollen. Uh, there would have been beetles and flies. There are these um, insects that were probably pollinators that are now extinct. I think they're called scorpion flies. <laughs> and there are possibly and others that are, that are now extinct as well that, you know, we just haven't found the fossils and for. And how long ago did these first start to appear? Uh, 
I don't want to give exact dates because okay. yeah, it's yeah. like there's there's huge estimates. So one of my colleagues, she's doing her PhD at Sydney Uni. Yeah. She wrote a whole paper looking at, at all of the estimates of all of these different dates. Okay. Because um, they can vary, you know, like the dates for when flowers first appeared. Some people say it's 140 million years ago. Yeah. Other people say it's 270 million years ago. Yeah, so quite a range. <laughs> it's quite a large range of more than 100 million years. There's a lot of uncertainty yeah. when you're looking at all of this stuff. Yeah. And, okay, so it's p- pretty clear what plants get from pollination, but what do the insects or the pollinators get from this relationship? So they're not doing it just out of the goodness of their little bee hearts. Oh. <laughs> They do have little bee hearts. <laughs> They're totally doing it because they get a reward. So the most common reward is nectar. So flowers produce nectar just to bring pollinators in. Um, pollen as well. Like even if the plant doesn't want the pollinator to eat their pollen, they want the pollinator to take that pollen to another plant. But sometimes they'll produce just a lot of extra pollen, mm-hmm. knowing that something's just going to chow down on it, but might take a few grains to another plant. There's some really rare cases. There's heat in irises, <laughs> which you'd know about in a, um, <laughs> where like bees will warm themselves up because the iris is actually the warmest thing in that landscape. So, wow. Just because of the way the flower grows or they've developed some way to like generate the, heat? The, fl- the flower has like developed sort of colour spots that will absorb sunlight ah, and, okay. and also an architecture basically that kind of traps, traps heat, that heat. as well. So it's like a little sauna for bees. Yeah. Amazing. Um, so can I ask about these bee pollen sacs you were talking about on their legs? Why do they need why why do they have the sacs? Like if they if it just gets caught on their hairs and stuff. Why it, would they need to pack it away? So I know about it best in social bees. Yeah. So not not all bees are social. Some of them just will nest by themselves. Okay. But honeybees and Australia native stingless bees and also bumblebees are quite social. Okay. I think all of those bees have pollen baskets, they're called. Okay. Sorry. And, yeah. Sex. No. <laughs> it's fine. Pollen Sex baskets. Sex. Pollen baskets is a little cuter. It's like yeah, a picnic. Yeah. It is, yeah. Yeah. Um, it is pretty much like they will go to the flower to forage and collect nectar and pollen, but they don't eat it themselves. They don't just sit there and snack on it. Okay. They carry it back to a hive yeah. or a nest, and then they'll take it out of their little baskets and pack it away, basically. Yeah. And that's honeybees and stingless bees. They're often like they're constantly doing that to shore up stores for winter or for a cold day. Yeah. Okay. So it's the most efficient way to carry it, I think. Right. Um, and so the most famous bee, as we all know, is the honeybee. But you studied also some native bees, right? Um, can you tell, like, are they threatened? Like, why? Why? Or also, why don't don't we hear so much about? Um, Native bees. Oh, I thought we heard a lot about them, but I might be living in a bee bubble. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a very painful bubble, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I hear a lot about native bees. Like every now and then, and I have a friend that did do an honest project on it years ago, but I don't think I often hear about native yeah. bees that much. They are like often, they are harder to spot. You know, pretty you, little, aren't they? Are they? Yeah, the na- native stingless bees are very small. Yeah. They're like... I don't know, maybe seven millimeters long. Yeah, okay. And they're black, so people probably would see them and not immediately think bee. Yeah. Because we have this pattern in our head that is based on the European honeybee. Mm-hmm. That's that 
yellow and black stripes. But a lot of our native bees don't have that. Like, So the stingless bees are small and they're black Yeah, and they, they look kind of glossy. We have peacock carpenter bees, which are like quite large and an iridescent blue colour. Wow. They sound amazing. Yeah, they're really shiny. Um, yeah, we've got just a whole range. There's like neon cuckoo bees. They're like fluorescent. Yeah. What a name. <laughs> what <laughs> colour are they? Favorite. Like, they're like black and neon blue, like wow. bright neon blue. And are these? do these bees live in different regions of Australia or are they sort of across the whole continent? Different regions. So the stingless bees, they're very small. They're, they're mostly tropical. So they do occur down in Sydney. And, but we're getting close to the southern limit of their range because okay. it's just too cold for them yeah. further south. Um, the solitary bees, really, you get them all over. Different species in different places. Amazing. But, yeah, they're in Sydney. Where are these uh, iridescent blue ones? <laughs> I want to see some. <laughs> I've seen them at North Head in Manly. Oh, okay. Yeah, they're called carpenter bees because they've got these really solid jaws and they nest in wood. They, they use their jaws and they gouge out holes in the wood. Um, but yeah, they're around Sydney. You just have to basically get a good day where the sun's out and it's nice and warm and stand next to a flower or preferably like a whole lot of flowers. And wait for them. And go. wait and you'll you'll see all sorts of things, yeah. And I'm sorry we, we focus so much on bees. Are there any other <laughs> like native Australian animals that also pollinate? So many. I have been really interested to learn because... Growing up in Australia, I was like, oh, you know, vertebrate, like bird pollination, that's really common. In Europe, it's actually really uncommon, apparently. Or like there is almost no vertebrate pollination in Europe, no birds or bats or anything. Mm-hmm. So that's something that I find very interesting that we have just, we have bats like flying foxes, but also small microbats. Like there's a few different ones that do visit and pollinate flowers. And all of our honey eaters, a lot of parrots... They're a bit destructive, though. They often eat the flowers <laughs> as they're sort of spreading pollen around. And even things like honey possums in Western Australia, which are the tiny oh, little marsupials. Honey possums are the best. Yeah, they're very they're cute. cute. I think pygmy possums in around Sydney as well probably, I think they rely on, on flowers a lot for food. I have a, um, sorry, might be a slightly off-topic question, but can mosquitoes be a pollinator of flowers or...? Yes. So flies, I was just talking about vertebrates. There's yeah. like so many different invertebrates that pollinate. Okay. And flies are probably actually the number one pollinator uh, in some ways, in numbers, because yeah. there are so many flies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they're also hairy and they also will, will fly around. Yeah. So, yeah, there's mosquito pollination, slightly less common because they're small and mm-hmm. kind of slender. But I think there are a few cases I can think of. And are those, like, any of those pollinators threatened by anything? And, like, if they are, can we help them in any way? Like, even in the cities? So it's a mixed story. Like, you might have heard the sort of save the bees yeah. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, like, it, at, at the one hand, I'm like, yes, that's great, save the bees. On the other hand, I'm like, the science is mixed about, you know, yeah, people, like get excited about a, a narrative basically and and the science isn't all there on pollinator declines or it, it's a mixed story it's complicated um but what my old supervisor used to say is yes 
the bees are threatened in the same way as kind of everything is threatened. You know, if we're flattening habitat and building homes and that affects the plants, the trees that are there, the birds and the bees and all of the insects that were living in that ecosystem as well. And we're doing that at unprecedented scales kind of all across the world. So I don't know if that's a hopeful message. <laughs> so it's basically like not just bees, but sort of a lot of pollinators that are potentially. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I guess that like, it's one of the things I find interesting about pollination is it's sort of like, oh, everything is interconnected. You know, yeah. if you take out the flowers, then you're also taking out the things that feed on those flowers mm-hmm. and vice versa. If you take out the pollinators, then suddenly those flowers can't reproduce. Yeah. And, you know, maybe they'll just sort of slowly dwindle because they can't make the next generation. Um, As far as what we can do, I think essentially, like, grow flowers (laughs) (laughs) on some level. For native pollinators, it's best to have native flowers and, and a range. Like, if you just grow big, showy grevilleas, then mainly what you're going to get is noisy miners who or wattle birds who are very mm-hmm. aggressive large birds who will mm-hmm. compete for it and scare anything else away from your garden but if you grow like bursaria or like spiky plants or just a whole different range of plants then you'll get a whole different range of things visiting generally that sounds amazing um and maybe on a slightly different note i heard so much about orchids like what what's the deal with them why why are they like so good at pollination pollination and why are they deceptive? I was reading a paper this morning, actually, and it was like, I think it said something like maybe 56% of orchids will actually provide a reward, like the nectar, I think, generally, for a pollinator to visit. And 40, maybe it was, oh, my, my numbers are slightly wrong, but roughly like a bit more than over 40% of them are deceptive. And so they just, they look like, the early example was one that looks like a wasp and gets the pollinator, the wasp, to come and mate with it <laughs> and then pick up its pollen while it's trying to mate with it. <laughs> and it's actually a really common system for, wow. for orchids. There's quite a lot that do that. It's called pseudocopulation, I think. <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, there are a whole world that I haven't stepped into because I find them quite intimidating because there are <laughs> so many orchid species and so many of them have this very... So most pollination is actually really general. You know, we often think like, oh, this thing must be pollinated by that thing. But actually, this one plant is probably visited by a whole range of different insects, all of which have different levels of of pollination, like that they're contributing to that relationship. Mm -hmm. But orchids are like the one exception to this, where really most orchids have a single species that pollinates them. And this crazy, like, one-to-one relationships. Um, So moving on from orchids, can you tell us a bit about plant blindness and what that is? So there's arguments about the name to start with. Okay. Some people like to call it plant awareness disparity because it's sort of like, well, we we don't want to say that being blind is bad. But generally the idea is that plants are everywhere, like... You will have walked past so many species of plants today, just in your day-to-day life generally, but people rarely notice them. Like most plants just become part of the background scenery for most people. Mm -hmm. And so like if you go out on a sports field, you'll just be like, oh yeah, that's grass. 
But if you take a botanist to that same field, they might not be very excited. <laughs> it is still a sports field, but they'll be like, oh, there's like, you know, three or f- four different species in this little spot right here. Yeah. Where someone was just like, oh, that's just one thing. And so, and so why is that kind of such a bad thing that people don't really take notice of plants? It's kind of like you won't care for something if you don't even notice it's there. And if you don't notice it's there, you're also not going to notice when suddenly it isn't there. It's not there. there. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, there's some discussion about whether this is a new thing in our society because generally, you know, back in the day, if we were generally farming a bit more or you had a kitchen garden people are a bit more in contact with plants and paying a bit more attention. You know, if you want to get plants to grow and and you need the vegetables from them, you're going to actually care about what's growing in your garden a bit more Mm -hmm. or you're going to pay attention. Whereas now we're living, you know, if you get everything from the supermarket and you work all day on your computer, noticing the plants isn't really built into your day at all. Yeah. So, And how can you combat blindness? I mean... In yourself or in society? In society. I, I guess in yourself. Become a plant ecologist. <laughs> yeah, in yourself. become Everyone should be a plant ecologist. <laughs> Agree. <laughs> um, in society, I guess it is kind of up to plant ecologists and, and botanists to get out there a bit more and try and, and, yeah, help talk to people and be like, hey, have you noticed that cool plant over there? And here's a cool fact about it. And try and help increase people's connection to the plants around them. So I know throughout your research and your career, you uh, did both field work and computer work. Can you tell us about both of them and what, which one do you enjoy more and what field work entails? Yeah, for sure. I think so in my, my honours and then in my work after my honours, it was like a lot of field work. I did a little bit of lab work in my honours and that was enough for me to be like, I don't like working in a lab. <laughs> you have to follow very careful protocols and not set things on fire. And sometimes I found that hard. <laughs> Did you set anything on fire? Just a beaker. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I did... So, like, I did a whole field season working in the Snowy Mountains and that was just field work day after day. And it was so much fun. But then I came back to Sydney and I had a job where I was also doing a lot of field work. And after a year or two, I was like, okay, field work is really fun. Like you you go out into the field and you see the birds are singing and et cetera. And then you go, oh, I have to record this specific data and work really hard <laughs> until sunset to record the data that we need to get as well. But you do at least get out in, in it all at the end of the day, I think. My honor supervisor had another very good saying, which was, at the end of the day in the lab, you know, everything goes wrong and none of your experiments have worked out and you've just spent a day locked in a lab. And at the end of the day in the field, everything might go wrong and none of your experiments have worked out, but at least you've been out staring at the birds and listening to the nice breeze through the trees. (laughs) But yeah, after, I think there's an ideal balance. So I started my PhD... And at first we were talking about like all these fun field projects, like, oh, I could go out and look at the impact of bushfires on pollination. And then COVID happened and we were like, oh, hang on, field work is banned for a while. That meant that I went, oh, okay, well, I'd like to get good at programming in R and data analysis is in in R. And so I ended up doing basically that 
now for three years. <laughs> I've done a little bit of field work in the last few years. Um, even though field work often sounds very romantic and, and, you know, you're like, oh, you get to, you know, go out in cool different places and etc. If you're doing it back to back to back, it gets exhausting. You know, you can't, you often have to be away from home. You can't have a regular yoga class or anything because you kind of never get in a routine. Or you'll get a routine and then you'll be like, oh, I have to plan for the next bit of field work. Now I have to go and do it. So that's been a very nice thing about doing mostly computer-based work is being like, I can have a life. <laughs> <laughs> I can take my dog for walks regularly and etc. And I can learn a lot about programming and computer science, which is really interesting in its own way. Very useful skill for research. Yep, generally useful. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that too. For our last question, uh, do you have any advice for a budding biologist or, I don't know, pollination ecologist or even somebody who is looking into science communication? And you can have the your answer as broad or as narrow as you want. I mean, I think my advice for anyone interested in any of that is get out and try stuff. Like, there are always opportunities, you know, to volunteer on field work and that will lead you in, you know, it gives you a taste of, of what sort of things you like. It might be that you don't like field work at all and that's a good learn lesson too. Um, but yeah, get out and try different things. I did. I had a whole period of, of volunteering and doing different research projects in completely different fields and it was good because it, yeah, both because it taught me what I do like and because it taught me what I really don't like and what's too hard, namely furry animals. That's so... You can never find them when you need them to study them. <laughs> you heard it here. Don't study furry animals. <laughs> Thank you for being on our show, Ruby. No worries. Thanks for having me. This was Boiling Point, the weekly science show on Eastside 89.7 FM. We'll be back with a new science story next week. Bye for now. Bye.